If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name's Dave. I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, and this is the second part of our October podcast. I'm joined today by the magazine's deputy editor, Sue. Hello. Now, as I said, this is the second part of the podcast. You can still download the first part, which included interviews on medieval England, Operation Mincemeat and the Duchess. But we have even more great history for you now. She had a huge battle for power with her mother, and it really was the biggest mother-daughter struggle in history. Now that was Dr Kate Williams, who will be talking us through the difficult childhood of Queen Victoria. The highest proportion of the national vote the Nazi party ever won in a free election was 37.4%. And secondly, Professor Richard Evans is giving us the benefit of his vast experience of Nazi Germany with his five-minute lecture on the Third Reich. Of course, all these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine. That's the October issue, and it's on sale now, with a rather striking image of a young Queen Victoria on the cover. You don't have to go to the shops to get it, though, as we've got a great subscription offer for you this month. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you'll save 25% on the shop price. All you need to do is call us on 0844 or you can go online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. All you need to do is quote the code POD1008 to take part in this great offer. And now for our first interview. As Sue just said, the cover of this month's issue features a portrait of the young Queen Victoria. Uh, the magazine's section editor Rob Attar has been speaking to Kate Williams to find out more about her early years. Queen Victoria is one of the most well-known British monarchs, but as you explain in your new book, she had quite a struggle to get to the throne in the first place. Yes, we all have this image of Queen Victoria, I think, because there's two main things. There's a dull, matronly, dreary old woman, a, a real old stick. And first there's that, and the second bit is this idea that she's kind of been cemented on the throne for ages by inalienable right. And what I found during researching my book on young Victoria was that this image was completely different. As a girl, she was young, she was vibrant, she was determined. And at the same time, she had an unbelievable struggle to come to the throne against huge odds, not only against the expectations that she would never rule, the perceptions of people that she was kind of a minor princess and they didn't want a queen, but most of all, she had a huge battle for power with her mother, and it really was the biggest mother-daughter struggle in history. So what were the main objections to her becoming the Queen? Well, the big problem was she was born a long way from the succession. George III's seven sons and six daughters had managed between them one legitimate heir, and when she died in 1817, they all had a dash to produce another baby. And the Duke of Kent was another one who had a dash to produce a baby. He dumped his mistress at 20 years, found a much younger wife, started trying to have a child, and he produced Victoria in 1819. But no one really thought she'd be queen because he was the fourth son, and everyone thought that the three eldest sons 
would have children. And in fact, this was why she got her utterly bizarre name. Because the Prince Regent, who was ruling for his George III at the time because he was mad, at the christening, he said that I'm not having this child called any royal names, any typically royal names. She can't be called Elizabeth, Augusta, or after me, Georgiana, instead of any old name. And in fact, he said, call her the mother's name. And my mother was Victoire, a French name. And so she got called Victoria, and she said herself, I'm the first person in the country ever to be called Victoria. To the early people in the 19th century, it was an utterly, utterly ridiculous name. It's strange to us that Victoria seems so usual and traditional, and it seems so symbolic of utter Englishness. To them, it was utterly stupid, and still worse, it had a French origin. So she got given this outlandish name because no one ever thought she'd be queen, and they thought the older brothers would produce children. And there was an utter prejudice against her because she was born seemingly so far away from the throne, so outside of the traditions, and everyone worried about having a female queen because they'd had this mad king. Then they had George the Fourth, who was uh, debauched and hedonistic, and people were pretty worried about having a queen because we might think that Queen Elizabeth I is absolutely fabulous and strong and tough and Britain's golden age. But the Victorians were not so enthusiastic about Queen Elizabeth. In fact, they thought she was mistaken and cruel. So the female queens, and especially after the disasters, Queen Anne, didn't have such a, a good image. This was another thing Victoria had to circumvent. So really, as she was growing up, just as a young girl before the age of 18, she not only had to struggle against her family, to struggle against the perception that she was too far from the throne. People were all saying that you know, they're going to have another heir. Politicians who thought she was irrelevant, but most of all, this idea that a female monarch would be a disaster. Although she had a lot of obstacles to circumvent, she did get over them in the end. Was was she really lucky to get to the throne, or was it through her own determination? A combination of both. The luck was that none of the elder brothers did have a child that survived, so increasingly she moved up the uh, succession. And her determination was she absolutely refused to give in to her mother. Her father, the Duke of Kent, died very soon after she was born. And her mother, the Duchess of Kent, along with her erstwhile advisor, John Conroy, an inscrupulous Irishman who had been a query to the Duke, he and she embarked on this huge plan. They were convinced Victoria would come to the throne of the child and they would be the regents. They would be utterly in charge of her and they would get money and power and all the respect they had wanted. So they embarked on these endless campaigns to get power from her. First of all, by trying to sort of control her the whole time and ensure that she was seen as separate from her uncles because they didn't want her uncles taking her to adopt her at court. But they were obsessively, they watched her 24 hours a day. She was never allowed to be alone. She had to sleep in her mother's room and her bed was always there. Her mother gave her a diary and read all the entries. What they wanted most of all was to control her so that when she came to power, whether it was at 12 or 13 or even 6, she would give everything to them. And of course, it was an utter disaster. King William IV hated the Duchess of Kent so much that he was absolutely determined to hold on to life until Victoria turned 18. And then Victoria turned 18 in um, 1837, and uh, the king had his excuse. He gave up on life. Then a month later, Queen Victoria was on the throne. So she scuppered her mother's plans. She absolutely scuppered her mother's plans. Her mother's greatest desire was to be regent, and everything from Victoria's birth up until the age of 18 was directed at grabbing a regency from her, and it got horrifically intense. There were two main terrible intensive events. 
when Victoria was 16, she was getting increasingly independent. Her mother began to worry because she was 16. There were only two years to go before she became of age. And what her mother did was twofold. She spread rumours that Victoria was too stupid, too frivolous to rule. And when Victoria fell desperately ill with typhoid at Ramsgate, her mother saw this illness as an opportunity. Victoria was almost dying. The doctor said she was almost dying. And her mother took the opportunity to loom over her with a paper making her, saying, I'm begging you to appoint John Conroy as your absolute treasurer and private secretary, which would have given him all the power he needed. Victoria refused, and her mother held back. And then when Victoria turned 18, her mother started again. Before the king died, there was this intense campaign where they tried to force her to give up all power to them voluntarily, tried to force her to agree to the fact that she would need a regency before the age of 21, that she would say, look, I'm too stupid to rule at 18. Please let me have my mother as regent until I'm 21. And John Conroy suggested they starve her and lock her up and beat her, and her mother was constantly begging her and forcing her. So really, Victoria, in an age when children were obedient to their parents, long past the age of 18, Victoria showed this incredible spirit in standing up to her mother and in being convinced that she herself had the ability and the qualities to rule the country at just 18. So when she finally did come to the throne, what was the reaction of the people around her? When Victoria came to the throne, the country was absolutely overjoyed. They were utterly thrilled to see her. They had completely had enough of mad George III, then debauched George IV, then William IV, who was just a buffoon. As one of Victoria's early biographers, Sir Sidney Lee, said before her, the throne had been occupied by an imbecile hedonist and a buffoon. And it really couldn't get any worse. Every king was self-obsessed, self-indulgent, and the public, their spirits were really broken by this terrible monarchy that they had. And Victoria coming to the throne, she seemed so different. She seemed young, she seemed fresh, and importantly, she had associated herself with Whig ideas, with ideas about expanding the electorate, which all the kings had been absolutely against. She really seemed more in touch with the people, and she and her mother had been on huge tours around the country. So she'd been to all these different places around the country when previous kings had just stayed in their palaces. So she'd been seen by a lot of the population. And really, as Britain moved away from and being based in aristocratic power towards middle-class power, she seemed like a queen for the middle classes. And they were utterly overjoyed to see her. And her popularity in her early years was really incredible. And what was her mother's reaction when she became queen and she was too old for her mother to control her anymore? It was the worst day of her mother's life. It was absolutely devastating for her mother. When the the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chamberlain, when King William died, they set off to Kensington Palace to inform Victoria that she was now Queen, and the Duchess forced them to wait outside Kensington Palace for at least an hour while she planned her next step. She woke Victoria up at 6 o'clock and said the great men were waiting to see her, and she tried to enter the room with Victoria to see them, and Victoria refused her permission. She said, no, I'm going alone. And this was the first moment in which her mother realised she'd lost control of her. After Victoria became queen, she had two main requests. First of all, she asked for an hour alone, something she'd never had in her life before. 
and then she asked to have her bed moved from her mother's room. After that, it was nothing but Mama was completely marginalised. They moved to Buckingham Palace. Victoria gave her apartments a long way away, and she told Mama she couldn't just walk into her apartment if her mother wanted an appointment. She would have to send a letter, and usually Victoria refused her and told her she was too busy. Victoria was polite to her, but the Duchess was absolutely frozen out of her life, and um, she had to live with her because... As strange as it is, even though she was queen, she was still seen as an unmarried young girl. And although she was surrounded by ladies-in-waiting, it was just seen as immoral that she might live alone in the palace. So her mother had to live with her until her prime minister said, you marry. So she had to live with her, but um, Victoria marginalised her, and her mother spent the whole time utterly miserable, devastated, and realising she'd lost everything. Of course, Conroy deserted her once he realised there was no more chance of riches or power he skipped off to the continent with all the money he'd siphoned from her accounts and the poor duchess was left alone and then victoria was so desperate to get rid of her of course that when she was told that the only way to get rid of your mother was to get married she started to think seriously about suitors looking at victoria's reign as a whole the early problems she encountered did they impact on the rest of her reign yes i totally agree that victoria's early life was crucial in creating the queen that she became the Kensington system, which is what her mother called the system of surveillance, of threats, of begging, of attacking, of not letting her be alone. The Kensington system made Victoria feel terribly miserable. She had a wretched childhood. She looked back on it and said she never had a happy moment. But it made her an incredibly determined, watchful, and really intelligent woman. She knew how to hide her feelings. She knew how to dissemble. And she knew how to be determined, how to force something through. When the moment came for her to rule, she was utterly ready for it. And she was never failing in confidence that she would be able to rule the country. So her determination, her spirit, and her ability, I think, to understand something of the underdog was crucial in creating her, the queen she became, Britain's first and greatest constitutional monarch. Have you come to a different opinion of Victoria now that you've finished doing all this work on her? Yes. Um, initially, I w I've, always been, I've always been fascinated by Victoria, and I always thought there must be more to the struggle with her mother. That was really incredible, and I found her level of determination really amazing. But I think what the searching really brought me to was a real level of respect for Victoria, unbelievable level of respect for her strong-minded character, for her toughness, for her absolute refusal to give in. You think when you're 13 or 14 and your parents are begging you and and, and telling you your dead father would have wanted you to do this and your mother's crying and you know so many children would give in and she, she just didn't she refused she was sure that she could be queen i think i really came to a, a new level of, of respect for victoria i mean i think it showed me new things about the period as a whole the vision we have of victoria as staid and dull and boring you know she really was more of a jane austen character a regency character a young vibrant exciting determined girl and it really wasn't until very late in her life that she became the dreary old widow that we all think of in caricature. So you think we may not have the most accurate impression of Victoria nowadays? I think Victoria's greatest misfortune was the advent of photography before people had learned how to pose and before people had realised the importance of posing. So what we have of Victoria are these very terrible photographs and photographs compared to hugely flattering portrait pictures because of course all we ever have of Elizabeth I even when she's very old are terribly flattering portraits and they all look fantastic if we had nothing but flattering portraits of Victoria we wouldn't see her as quite so dreary and old and dull so poor Victoria she has these terrible photographs of herself when really as a younger woman she's never a great beauty but she has a 
depths of a spirit and a liveliness and a sensuality that the uh, painters can convey. So I think our vision of Victoria as comparing her with this old, dreary woman that she later became is reflective of how she, she was in later years, kind of a matron of Europe and widowhood was very unhappy for her. But in her younger years, and really up until her mid-40s, she was determined, vibrant, exciting, a real modern woman, and she was absolutely leading the nation. And leading a nation that itself was forging forward and creating the Britain that we know now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Becoming Queen by Kate Williams has just been published by Hutchinson. Now, before we go on to Richard Evans and the Third Reich, please indulge us for a brief advertising message. BBC Audiobooks has just published a new audio CD called Victoria's Empire, which follows the journey of writer and comedian Victoria Wood around the British Empire that flourished in the reign of her namesake, Queen Victoria. Here's an example of what's on the CD. So, being asked if I wanted to go to places named after Queen Victoria seemed quite a spiffy proposition. There seemed to be no hidden, you have to adopt a child in each country, or you're taking a special needs recorder ensemble with you, travelling by tricycle agenda at work. So, instead of scrawling a big no on the paper and faxing it back to my agent, I said we should talk about it. When the nice lady told me the locations of all the places that were named after Queen Victoria, I was very excited. They were all over the shop. Antarctica, Canada, Hong Kong. There was even a Victoria coach station right here in our own capital. Then we went from the kind of lunch meeting where you all get very enthusiastic and spit bits of breadstick over each other and go, Wow, Antarctica, Victoria coach station! To the kind of office meeting where you realise that going to places called Victoria isn't actually a television programme, it's a holiday. So, a bit like apes rubbing sticks together and realising they might end up with jacket potatoes, we started to talk about why there were all these places called Victoria, and how come they were so widespread, and had anybody minded all their nice place names in their own languages being hijacked by this one moniker, or monarcha. 
And that led us to the empire, that huge old elephant in the living room of our history. That time when the world was our cloakroom and by golly, we were going to put our names on the pegs. And then the original idea swivelled around a bit. We would go to places called Victoria, and in doing that, we would try to tell a little bit of the story of the British Empire, this lumpy, unmanageable and sometimes almost unmentionable thing that had grown to its biggest by the end of Victoria's reign. In 1897, Queen Victoria had been on the throne for 60 years, and during that time the British Empire had grown by more than ten times its former size. It covered a fifth of the Earth's surface and included a quarter of its population. By 1914, it controlled a quarter of the world's economy and had a population of more than 450 million people. It was the largest empire the world had ever known. It became popular to call it the empire on which the sun never sets, though I learnt later that a Sri Lankan politician once said that's because God doesn't trust the British in the dark. I didn't know any of that when I started work on the programme. In fact, I had only the vaguest idea of what the British Empire was. I had in my mind images culled from Somerset Maugham and Edgar Wallace. One book of his, Sanders of the River, I believe it was called, left a very strong impression in my mind that only an Englishman could rule over natives and make them see sense, so that was somehow our job, not always pleasant, and seeming in this case to involve being paddled upriver in a dugout canoe to dispense justice in the jungle. But it was a duty that had to be done. Other reading, Agatha Christie in particular, fostered an idea of the colonial man, someone who'd made his fortune in some part of empire, as a rubber planter in Malaysia, possibly, or in tea or coffee, as a good sort, often blue-eyed, usually weather-beaten, and not usually the murderer. He was quite often to be found smashing a teak-hard fist into the jaw of a foreigner, a cad, or an aesthete. So as a child and a voracious reader, I knew that all over the world, men in starched and wilting dress shirts or jodhpurs and bitter, disillusioned, chain-smoking ladies in tea dresses, whose sexual allure had faded in the fierce heat of the sun, were living out their lives on verandas, in bungalows and whites-only tennis clubs to a soundtrack of chirping insects and the whir of ceiling fans and that they were all something to do with the British Empire. This two-CD audiobook is on sale now from all good booksellers and is also available as a digital download. For more information on this title, visit our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash bbcshop.asp. And now we've got a, a special feature, something we haven't done on the podcast before. We've got a, a five-minute lecture. And Professor Richard Evans from Cambridge University is going to be delivering it. Uh, he is a noted expert on Nazism and the Third Reich, and he's going to be answering a specific question for us now about the Third Reich. How far do the German people support the Third Reich? It's important to remember at the outset that the highest proportion of the national vote the Nazi party ever won in a free election was 37.4% in July 1932. Even in March 1933, when Hitler had been in office as Reich Chancellor for over a month, his stormtroopers were rampaging across Germany, beating up the opponents of the Nazis, and political parties like the Communists and the Social Democrats, who between them had as much popular support as the Nazis did, were effectively banned from campaigning, the Nazi party still failed to get an overall majority. Of course, this made it the largest party, 
37% is usually enough to entitle a party to form a government in any normal democracy. But it was still a minority. The majority of the German people did not support the Nazis in a free election. Only after they'd intimidated the other parties into closing themselves down and set up a one-party state in which criticising Hitler or trying to change the constitution back to a democracy had become punishable by death were the Nazis able to apply their methods of physical violence and electoral manipulation across the board and gain the kind of result that all dictatorships crave for referendums and elections, a vote of more than 99%. Now, a 99% vote in favour of the Nazi party when there's no alternative and the secrecy of the ballot had effectively been abolished doesn't tell us anything about the degree of support Hitler and his Third Reich enjoyed in the German population, nor was there anything like opinion polls of the sort we have today. Fortunately, we have three sources that help us get at the truth. First of all, there are the secret reports of the Social Democrats smuggled out to their exiled party leadership on the general views and beliefs of ordinary people, especially in the working-class areas where they had most support. Then, there are the confidential reports on popular morale compiled by the security service of the SS and other agencies of the regime. Taken together, these two sources run into thousands and thousands of pages, and while they have to be used with caution, they're also often remarkably frank and invariably detailed, with plenty of verbatim quotes on all kinds of topics. Finally, there are interviews with and reminiscences from Germans who lived through it all and were able to look back, usually many years later, with the objectivity and detachment that often come with age. All these sources basically agree that the Nazis gained hugely in popularity during 1933, as they successfully projected an image of purposeful and united government in their first year of office, in sharp contrast to the bickering and indecisive cabinets of the Weimar Republic. But by 1935, their popularity had fallen sharply. When they came to power in 1933, well over a third of the German workforce was unemployed. Two years later, the problem still hadn't been solved. In addition, the Nazis were steering investment away from consumer production and towards rearmament, and trying to make the German economy self-sufficient in preparation for war. So there were many shortages of food, clothing and other basic things that people needed. But the introduction of mass military conscription in 1935, and the recovery of the economy that came with a massive scale of rearmament from this point onwards, soon soaked up the rest of the unemployed and gave everyone a job or a place in the armed forces. This helped make the regime popular again, and people remembered it as one of the Nazis' major achievements long after the Third Reich was over. But the biggest source of popularity for the Nazis was Hitler's restoration of Germany's place as the leading nation on the European continent. Rearmament itself contributed to this, since a peace settlement at the end of the First World War had restricted German arms to an absolute minimum. Germany left the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations, in protest at this. Then, in 1936, marched its troops into the western part of the country, the Rhineland, from which the peace settlement had banned them. In March 1938, the Third Reich annexed the small German-speaking Republic of Austria in a move that had massive public support in both countries. In September 1938, the Munich Agreement, brokered by British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, gave the German-speaking area of the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia to Germany as well. And the following year, the rest of Czechoslovakia was taken over and Poland was conquered in the space of a few weeks.
And then in 1940, German armies overran Norway, Denmark, Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg. And most important of all, the old enemy, the victor of World War I, France. All these victories won Hitler and the Nazis huge popularity. But this is only because they were gained with a minimum of bloodshed. Despite massive propaganda in its favour, war was not popular with ordinary Germans. They remembered the First World War. They did not want another one like it. They were rightly afraid of bombing. When Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, there was widespread apprehension. The first stunning victories of the German armies reassured people. But the catastrophic defeat at Stalingrad, followed by the loss of North Africa, the Allied invasion of Sicily, and then the start of a devastating campaign of mass Allied bombing of German towns and cities that eventually killed half a million people, destroyed the Nazis' credibility. Hitler had long been, for most people, the great leader who could do no wrong. But now he lost his charisma. Ordinary Germans blamed him for carrying on fighting when the war was obviously lost. By the time it came to an end, Nazism had lost almost all its support. There was never any chance that it would become a powerful or popular political force again. The final book in Richard Evans's uh, Third Reich trilogy has just been published. It's entitled The Third Reich at War, How the Nazis Led Germany from Conquest to Disaster, and it's published by Alan Lane. Now we're almost done, but there's still time for me to chat to the magazine's deputy editor, Sue Wingrove, about the best history books that have dropped into the BBC History magazine office this month. So Sue, what have we got? Okay, this is my top three from the 12 books we've reviewed in the um, October issue. The first is Shots from the Front by Richard Holmes. Now, this is a book of First World War photos with a difference. I mean, there are lots of photo um, histories of the war, um, often with captions and some context, and they have great photos with huge emotional appeal. Um, in addition, however, this one really inter- interrogates the photos as historical evidence. So why would I buy this? Well, it's good because Richard Holmes, of course, is an expert in the minutiae of warfare, and he offers a new perspective to the photographs here. Um, So even the ones you might have seen before offer up something new. Um, Richard has spent his career working with the British Army, so he's the perfect guide. Um, And, of course, this book has his usual very readable style. Okay, so that's Richard Holmes. What's your second choice? The second is uh, Burley, uh, William Cecil at the Court of Elizabeth I by Stephen Olford. Um, This is a biography of the greatest of Elizabeth's statesmen. Um, He served the Queen from her accession day in 1558 to his death, aged 77, in 1598. Burley was uh, famous for leaving a huge volume of paperwork behind him, in particular his memoranda, which set out the pro and con of every single decision he made. And how would you persuade me to invest in this particular title? Well, he's a he's a really big figure in British history. Uh, for example, it was he and the Privy Council who sent off the death warrant for Mary, Queen of Scots, after um, Elizabeth had signed it and then fallen prey to indecision um, and not sent it herself. Um, it's a welcome updating because until now, the standard biography of this figure was a 1955 study by um, an American academic. Time for a reassessment then, I'm sure. And your third choice... Okay, Queen Victoria's Skull by David Stack um, is a book on George Coombe, the Victorian phrenologist who had access to high social circles through his marriage to the daughter of the famous actress Sarah Siddons. Now, phrenology, of course, um, was the so-called science that held that 35 faculties resided in various parts of the brain um, and that their influence on the person could be deduced from the shape of the skull. Um, After seeing Queen Victoria's head at close quarters at the opera, um, he concluded that she was well endowed with a faculty of amativeness. 
um, and this was to prove quite accurate because she went on to have nine children. Um, Prince Albert consulted him about their wayward son, the Prince of Wales, who later became Edward VII. And how would you persuade me as nothing short than a fevered phrenologist to, to look at this book? Well, although this whole pseudoscience seems completely visible to us today, um, their belief in it and the book itself is an insight into the minds of intelligent Victorians um, and it's also very amusing. Thanks, Sue. Uh, it's an interesting few books from our selection. Now, before we go, don't forget that you can subscribe to BBC History magazine and save 25% on the shop price. All you need to do is call us on 0844 844 0250 or you can do it online. Just go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. And if you quote the code POD1008, you'll get that uh, discount that we talked about. OK, that's it for this month. Now, if you want more history, you can, of course, buy the magazine um, or you can go onto our website, which is www bbchistorymagazine.com There you'll be able to read our new blogs um, and you can also sign up to our new weekly History on TV e-newsletter That will arrive in your um, mailbox every Friday and remind you what's coming up on the telly Now, do look out for our November podcasts next month Um, and again, it will be in two parts The first will be a World War I armistice special We'll have interviews from Michael Palin who will be presenting a BBC Time Watch TV programme on the last day of the war and also interviews with Professor Gary Sheffield and David Reynolds. I do hope you join us for that. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.